my was attracted by some noise. Then suddenly there was Stephen on the floor, surrounded by some white men. Dwayne ran by me and he stopped and turned towards Stephen and said, run, Steve, run. I could see Stephen standing up, leaving his bag behind, and he ran, he ran very fast. And the white man uh, ran away. I was holding my breath, so what is happening? The atmosphere was very tense. I felt like some release when I saw Stephen uh, running. I thought he was okay. Then I could see Stephen lying on the floor. So I felt, oh my God, he's not right, in fact. But I, I didn't know he was dying. I'm Stephen Wright, and this is the Mail Plus true crime series, Stephen Lawrence, The Murder That Shamed Britain. Episode 1, A Lynching in South London. Stephen Lawrence was a young black man on the brink of fulfilling his ambition to train as an architect. He was 18, a promising A-level student and a talented athlete. But on April the 22nd, 1993, his life was cut short in the most shocking way when he was stabbed to death in cold blood on his way home. Stephen's killers were a gang of at least five white racist thugs. It was not so much a murder as a lynching, yet it happened at a bus stop in Eltham in southeast London. It was a case which shamed Britain. A young man murdered simply because of the colour of his skin. The Metropolitan Police mishandled its first inquiry into the case and it would take years and tens of millions of pounds to bring even some of his killers to justice. Stephen's murder had a profound impact on British policing and on society's attitudes towards racism. Last month, the Met announced it was shelving its biggest and most controversial murder probe after 27 years. There are no viable lines of inquiry and uh, people independent of the investigation have had a look to assure me there's nothing more can be done at the moment. To mark this, I have returned to the Lawrence case, which I've covered extensively since 1997, to retell the extraordinary story with the help of dramatic new testimony from witnesses, police, forensic experts, politicians and race campaigners, this series will chronicle the twists, turns and key milestones in a case which defined my early career. 
As a young journalist starting out in Fleet Street in 1993, one of my first jobs was to attend a protest march in the wake of Stephen's murder. Four years later, when I was crime correspondent of the Daily Mail, I advised my then editor on the newspaper's landmark front page, branding five racist thugs as murderers, and then led the newspaper's Justice for Stephen campaign. Fifteen years later, two of the men named murderers by the Daily Mail in 1997 were convicted of Stephen's killing. Was it, as some suggested, a trial by media? And could the police still secure more convictions? And in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests and renewed debate on racism in the justice system, have we learned the lessons of the Lawrence case? The voice you heard a few moments ago was Alexandra Marie, who was a French au pair aged just 19 when she witnessed Stephen's murder. She was only a year older than Stephen when he lost his life, and when hers was changed forever. I was a student in the University of Rouen in Normandy, and uh, I was studying uh, languages, and my English was not very good. So I tried to find out a way to be able to go to England and the au pair uh, system was um, a nice choice. You had, and I apologise for this, you had only been in London a matter of weeks before you had this horrific experience. Yes, it was, uh, I was there for about three weeks. I imagine you've been through this many times, both verbally and in your own mind. But can you remember, how did that day start for you, the day that Stephen died? At that time, I had uh, two friends who came over to visit me, two French friends. So we spent the day um, in central London. And then in the evening, uh, I went back home near Woolwich. And uh, so I was coming back there. I was at the Eltham train station, and there is a bus stop at uh, a roundabout to wait for the 122. Mm. At the beginning, I was on my own. Uh, a few minutes later, um, these two young black men who came and waited with me, I could see them um, lively, happy, and so they were... Um, doing some dance steps on the pavement and uh, they were chatting together. But I didn't understand English that much at that time, so I couldn't understand what they were saying. But the, the point, obviously, you're making is that they were not doing anything to upset or offend anybody else. But they were very polite and so they gave me a very, very nice impression. And it was like, oh, OK, uh, that would be really nice. I'm a young woman. And to have friends like them, you know, was in that state of mind. Stephen was stabbed to death at around 10.30 on that Thursday night in 1993. In an attack that lasted around 10 seconds. He was with his friend Dwayne Brooks near a bus stop in Wellhall Road in Eltham when he was approached by a gang of white youths who yelled out, what, what? and the N-word, 
before surrounding him. As Drain fled the scene, getting only a fleeting glimpse of the mob, Stephen was knifed to a depth of about five inches in his chest and arm. He ran about 130 yards before collapsing and dying. It was a chaotic scene with varying accounts of exactly what happened and who was responsible. But amid the confusion after the attack, Alexandra has a very clear memory of something which still concerns her. I saw two guys that I thought were very strange. These guys have always uh, haunted me because I suspected they could be part of the attackers. Well, especially one whose face scared me. And uh, the feeling I had from this man was very, very different from the feeling I had uh, of Stephen and Dwayne. They were um, at the bus stop and they were um, like talking together. One of them gave something to the other, then ran and, and went to see Stephen. I had a strange feeling uh, with that man. He was looking aggressive. And uh, I saw his teeth and I thought, oh my God, he's, he's, this man is caring. How old was he, Alex? Was he a young man? Yes, yes, he was quite, quite young. And, and he got on the bus with you, is that correct? The two of them uh, got on the bus and they didn't sit together. But I was surprised because I felt that they were knowing each other. Because when they, the man came back to the bus stop, he took the thing he gave to the other guy back. There can be no doubt that Alexandra was a key witness in the case, but did police make full use of her? Could, as a result of her testimony, the case been solved much sooner? Remember her description of the man with bad teeth who got on the bus. We will return to him later in this series. A string of senior detectives had responsibility for the initial investigation into Stephen's murder. The public inquiry into the Lawrence case later said that the first Met probe into his death was marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism and a failure of leadership by senior officers. Ex-Detective Chief Inspector Clive Driscoll was based in Brixton, South London at the time of Stephen's murder. Although he was not involved in the initial investigation, he would later take over the case. In fact, it was his inquiry that would see two of Stephen's killers brought to justice nearly 20 years later. As a result, Clive has an in-depth knowledge of the police failings in those early stages of the case. Baroness Lawrence has an expression which I think is spot on. Everything to do with Stephen is bonkers. I often say if I gave people a blank piece of paper and said you could be as outrageous as you want to be on that bit of paper about what could go wrong and why it went wrong, you, you probably still would only get about 20% of Stephen. From the outset, the investigation was blighted by blunders. When police arrived at the bus stop on Wellhall Road, they failed to follow basic procedure for securing a crime scene or collecting witness statements. There was opportunities missed. We didn't control the scene. There were actually some very senior police officers that attended that scene, but no one really took control from what I can see. 
false information was passed and I will say it was a chaotic scene preservation. The police make their mind up very, very quickly about what's happened and that's what they try and prove as opposed to looking what the information was telling them. Would it be fair to say that there was a degree of suspicion and assumptions were made by the police in those first hours of the investigation because Stephen was black? You know, there was almost a planted in your minds that just because Stephen happened to be a young black boy, was it a gang fight? The answer was there certainly was a gang involved, but it weren't Stephen. To this day, people down in south-east London and sadly some police canteens talk about, you know, as if Stephen was involved in some kind of criminal activity. You know, if there was, was he stabbed with his own knife? No, he was not. Was he involved in a drug deal? No, he was not. Was he involved in any gang activity? No, he actually was not. And, you know, was this about other incidents that happened? No, he was not. Stephen was just there because he was going home. He was going to catch a bus. Not only did the police bungle the management of the crime scene, but they also failed to follow up leads from the public. Incredibly, the day after the murder, a letter giving the names of four notorious young men, all teenagers, was left in a telephone box in Eltham. It read, one, Neil Akel, two, Dave Norris, three, Jamie Akel, four, Gary Dobson, were involved in stabbing on Wellhall Road. Well, it certainly named the two people I eventually convicted, but it also named two other people as being part of it. We also had an informant of the time that was coming in and given information as well. In fact, the A-Courts were named in connection to the attack 26 times in the 48 hours after Stephen's murder. And yet it took four days for the police to begin surveillance on those named. French au pair Alexandre Marie, one of only three witnesses at the bus stop, came forward after finding out by chance that the attack she had witnessed was a murder. On the Saturday evening, I was um, in the kitchen. I didn't used to read newspaper, but that evening, I don't know why, in the kitchen, I started to look at the newspaper. And suddenly I read a murder at Eltham Station at 22.30. And I said, oh, my God. No, and, and then I read that the young man uh, was named Stephen Lawrence. Reading further, I discovered that a young woman with a black coat and um, a yellow bag was um, looked for. And then I started to shiver, to cry. I couldn't say a word, but I went to see the mother of the family and I gave her the newspaper. And uh, because I couldn't speak, I was crying. And they, they gave me a brandy to try to cheer me up. And they called the police. When did you see the police and how did that happen? On the Monday. On the Monday. So did they come to your, your yes. family's home? Yes. And two police officers, I presume? Yeah, there were two police officers. And did either of them speak French? Did they have an interpreter with them? No, they were speaking English. 
So they spoke to my family and they spoke with me, but um, they said that they would need me to go to the police station uh, a few days later with a translator. How was that first meeting for you? Because again, you, you're 19 and just newly arrived from your home in France and it must have been a difficult situation for you having to deal with police officers and go through the details of what you had seen. What I remember is that I really wanted to help and say everything that I saw. And uh, if any detail could help, and uh, I had a very, very fresh memory of uh, every details, uh, bus numbers, um, uh, descriptions of the people, and I was willing to, to help, really. I would imagine one of the many things you told them was about the man with the bad teeth. So I said, I'm really sorry to give a bad description of this man, but I have a very bad impression of him. Sorry. How were you feeling at that point? How do you manage to process what had happened at all? No, it's crazy. It's not possible. How can someone be killed because of the color of his skin? Even though how can someone be killed by someone else? It was like only in movies, and then it was reality, just while I was waiting for a bus. Something which was uh, beyond understanding. When you gave a more detailed statement to the police in the police station, an artist did draw an image, didn't he or she? I said, OK, if, if I saw this man, I, I could recognize him. I didn't have the opportunity to see him again. The police failed to follow up on Alex's lead. Her specific description of one of the young men acting very suspiciously and did not invite her to an ID parade of the suspects. I know people might say, Clive, that you'd got the benefit of hindsight. But those names which the police were tipped off about, at that stage, would there have been grounds to have arrested those suspects? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And we didn't. That's a reality. We didn't. I pose this to young coppers now, and I haven't found a copper yet that wouldn't have arrested. So I think that we do have to accept that maybe that was a decision. But if I may just balance that up with, I don't know all of the other complex situations that were flying about in that investigation. I do not know what the other pressing demands were. Mm. Based on what I know now, yeah, I think we should have arrested. But I wasn't living it at the time. I've debated publicly and in my own mind in the 23 years since I've been reporting extensively on the Stephen Lawrence case, cock-up or conspiracy over the handling of the initial investigation. I find it difficult to believe any serving officer would want to protect those who killed Stephen. But that's not to say that misjudgments weren't made in the initial stages of the inquiry. From the very start, Stephen's parents, Neville and Doreen Lawrence, now Baroness Lawrence, had raised concerns about the investigation. With Baroness Lawrence and Dr. Neville Lawrence, indeed Mr. Brooks, I, I don't think personally that you would ever convince them that there wasn't some malpractice in the original investigation because they lived it, didn't they? 
Within two weeks of their son's murder, they voiced claims of corruption and a cover-up. Their lawyer, Imran Khan, spoke at a press conference on their behalf. The police, certainly from the family's point of view, have not taken this investigation as seriously as they would have hoped. What we want to do is to move forward and hopefully the police will now uh, take very seriously all information they receive, however uh, insignificant it may seem to them at the time. Sir Peter Bottomley is the longest serving MP in the House of Commons and back in 1993 he was the Conservative MP for Eltham. Sir Peter, were you aware at the time that there was this perceived wall of silence in Eltham which was protecting the killers, irrespective of any incompetence or inaction by the detectives investigating the case? As soon as the news came out, the police were told who they should think may have done it, and the wall of silence wasn't needed. So the simple answer is, I didn't sense a wall of silence. There wasn't a wall of silence. And even if there were, it wouldn't have made much difference because you only need a few people to say, look for the Norrises, look for Acourt, look for so-and-so. One of the best bits of advice I ever heard was don't listen to the noise, look at the evidence. Ex-DCI Clive Driscoll. Because there couldn't have been a wall of silence, the amount of information that was coming in. There might have been a wall of fear. In other words, people would quite happy to tell the police may not have been quite happy to sort of stand up and shout it from the rooftops, but I would understand that because this was a violent group and there was some criticism that the early investigation just used to knock on doors, which identified someone who might have been trying their hardest to help police, but maybe scared for their family and their friends that they might get some retribution. And indeed, I know of at least two incidents where people who had given information, were visited by some of the, the gang. So I don't get the wall of silence because there wasn't, but I do understand the fear because that certainly existed. Early in the Daily Mail Stephen Lawrence campaign, I spent weeks investigating alleged corruption, not only in the police, but also the wider justice system. A key line of inquiry for me was whether a bent detective was bribed to thwart the case or key witnesses pressured not to cooperate with officers. The young men named to police were part of a notorious gang in the Eltham area. The Acourt brothers, Gary Dobson, David Norris and Luke Knight. It's quite well documented that they like to call themselves the craze there had been attacks, uh, indeed torture. Certainly there did appear to be a drugs connection in as much as that they were actively supplying drugs locally in the area and in fact then reinforcing, as that unfortunately happens in the drugs world, they were reinforcing their status by violence. The Acorp gang weren't just a small-time group of teenagers looking for trouble. They had some serious backing. One of their members, David Norris, was the son of a notorious South London mobster with links to the drugs trade. From the very start of the Lawrence case, there were accusations that Clifford Norris had undue influence over the investigation, whether by intimidation or bribery. 
Clive, do you think there was a climate of fear in the Eltham area around Clifford Norris? Just weeks before Stephen was attacked, David Norris had stabbed a young man called Stacey Benefield in broad daylight in Eltham, and somehow he was acquitted at trial. There was evidence to suggest Clifford Norris had nobbled witnesses in that case. There's a bizarre moment which was investigated where I think a member of the jury actually approached young David Norris, you know, in that trial and offered him a job. I I don't personally find it hard to believe that an organised criminal network with all of its wealth, that if that existed, they would use it. In fact, I'd find it harder to believe they didn't. I remember a customs officer telling me in the late 90s, someone who'd interviewed Clifford Norris for his drug dealing and other criminal activities, He said Norris was one of the scariest villains he'd ever met. And in a room, although a small man, he had a real aura around him. And he was clearly a very violent individual who would do potentially anything to protect his son from scrutiny over Stephen's murder or indeed any other offence he had committed. These people were involved in high-level criminal activity, the importation of Class A drugs, they certainly were connected to some other quite fearful known criminal networks. I don't find it hard to believe that that organised criminal network would do everything in its power, and if there were corrupt police officers, it makes total sense to me that they'd use them to actually thwart a good investigation. And I have to be honest, it was almost in the forefront of my mind throughout, from 2006 to 2014 when I I retired, that was always uppermost in my mind. Earlier in the Stephen Lawrence campaign in the Daily Mail, I was approached, there are strict rules around approaching jurors in cases, I was approached by a man who turned out to be the jury foreman in the David Norris, Stacey Benefield case. I'd written about the case and the suspicions around what had happened that a jury had been nobbled. This man approached me, and it was extraordinary, Clive. He was only 18 when he was the jury foreman. He revealed that at the time, and it was allowed, that he was on bail pending a charging decision on whether he should be charged with fraud. He also revealed that he had a relative who was from a major London crime family, and he was the one who was very keen to acquit David Norris and actually offered him a job. It was extraordinary, and and I remember someone warning me that this is getting very sinister and I should be careful myself about Clifford Norris and um, probing deeply into his links to the Lawrence case. I suppose people listening to what you just said there would be horrified. But it just reinforces what I personally believe anyway, which is that if you are an organised criminal network, you couldn't never really be described as pro-police, could you? They will do everything in their power to undermine it. I was contacted by someone else. Obviously, I was doing a lot of work in the Stephen Lawrence campaign then. Someone in court that day who was involved in transporting Norris from a secure unit to court warned me, and it was a very chilling warning, about how dangerous the Norris family were. 
I remember him revealing that the jury foreman was smiling and winking at Norris in the dock and that the jury foreman wrongly believed that the security guard was his dad. It was so sinister, it got me really thinking about what had happened in Stephen's case and the impact that Clifford Norris could have had on justice there. Returning to the murder investigation, the police had been working on the case for nearly two weeks. They had the names of at least four suspects, but they had made no arrests. In an act of frustration, the Lawrence family held a press conference voicing their disappointment in the delay. But it took the intervention of no lesser figure than Nelson Mandela, who met the Lawrences whilst visiting the UK on a diplomatic trip and backed their cause for the Met Police to be spurred into action. For Neville and Doreen Lawrence, the handshake with Nelson Mandela two weeks after the murder made everything possible. It gave Stephen's killing an international dimension. This was now as much about colour as it was about justice. It is a fact that the commissioner did meet Nelson Mandela and Nelson Mandela actually named the suspects and said, why haven't you arrested them? And then very shortly afterwards, we did. I would find it very strange if that didn't influence us, because it should. It should influence us. But on the 7th of May, we did search five suspects' houses. On four of the searches, we actually used a, a specialised team to search. But where we didn't use the specialised team was David Norris's house. We did find an array of weapons. You know, we must never forget this that the forensic evidence that I found was found on stuff which was seized on the 7th of May 1993. We must never forget that, that the officers who went and did the searches did find the clothing that eventually was sufficient to convict Mr Dobson and Mr Norris. So, you know, they did something right, didn't they? And in fact, we arrested suspects, but we didn't arrest David Norris till the following day. That's always been a bone of contention. Well, why him? Why the one person that we know that is connected to organised criminal networks? Why have we not nicked him to the following day where he came in with his solicitor? In that day, between the other suspects being detained and David Norris's arrest, could evidence have been destroyed, the murder weapon disposed of, it's a question we may never know the answer to. But the police's failure to act quicker has been the subject of much discussion over subsequent years. Nazir Assel is a former Chief Crown Prosecutor at the Crown Prosecution Service. He spent his legal career working closely with the police to build cases. I asked him just how damaging was that delay in arresting the five key suspects. There was a golden period in the hours, if not early days, of an investigation when you can collect evidence. If you go beyond that, it's much more difficult to find, for example, forensic evidence. And the earlier you carry out an arrest where there is reasonable suspicion, the more likely it is that you'll be able to find evidence. Looking specifically at the Lawrence case, is there a possibility evidence was lost in that two-week window? Absolutely. I mean, in all the cases I've dealt with, I must have dealt with 
two or three hundred homicides during my career. And from experience, you really cannot have that two-week window. You can't, you know, two hours is probably too long, uh, and certainly two days is. Two weeks is a long time, and everything that could happen and probably did happen was allowed to happen because the early arrests weren't made. I would put it to you that those lost weeks have really been damaging right up to today in terms of getting complete justice. 100%. If people had done their job properly and more effectively, that would undoubtedly have brought justice much, much earlier. The fact that none of that happened meant that there was a cold sore worse than that. People lost confidence in policing, lost confidence in authority, lost confidence in the state being able to protect them. It caused community tension. You know, all of that, unfortunately, we're still paying the price for 27 years later. A little context might be helpful here. Back in the 1990s, Eltham had a reputation. In fact, the far-right British National Party had picked a bookshop in nearby Welling as its headquarters, and the area was seen as a breeding ground for racist views. In the weeks and months after Stephen's murder, many people made a connection between this reputation, the bookshop, and the attack. Soon becoming the focus of demonstrations by anti-fascist groups. In the four years that followed the BNP's arrival here, there were a spate of race-hate attacks in the area. Sir Peter Bottomley, you were the Conservative MP for Eltham at the time of Stephen's murder. What's your opinion on the notoriety of Eltham and the close proximity of it to the British National Party headquarters? My view is that people of the kind who attacked Stephen Lawrence didn't read books, but that, that was not the Eltham I knew. It wasn't the Eltham I served, and it, they weren't the problems people brought to me. Mm. And whether people were black or Asian or some other minority, they didn't normally come to me because they were being persecuted. They came to me because they had a, a family problem or a personal problem. I think I would say in summary that racism was not an obvious or dominant issue, and I didn't notice it growing. But in October 1993, six months after Stephen's murder, a march wound its way through the streets of South London. The protesters' target was the bookshop and the hatred they believed was being spread from its shelves. Though initially peaceful, the protest turned violent as the Met Police riot squad attempted to divert protesters from the shop. That police cordon was ordered by the then Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Paul Condon. Remember that name, he'll play a key role in this story as it unfolds. As the weeks and months that followed Stephen's murder passed and there appeared little or no hope of quick justice, the Met were dogged with further accusations of racism in the investigation and also in the force itself. When David Michael joined the Met in 1972, he was only the 11th black officer in the force. He would later go on to form the Black Police Association and successfully sue the force for discrimination. He spent much of his career based in Lewisham, a neighbouring borough to Eltham in south-east London. 
He described to me the atmosphere in the police there at the time. 24-7, in every environment in the police at that time where I was, in the front office, in the canteen, in the police vehicles, the most vile and crude racist language you may have heard or you could imagine was just routine, 24-7. Nobody had any reservations about using it in my presence and hearing. And the thing is, no senior or supervising officer ever intervened. And the police attitude towards black people, especially young black men, which is still a feature today, was that they all had a chip on their shoulder and basically they were not up to much. Some of the officers, and I think it's even a minuscule amount by the general thing that I'm describing, would actually again, just sit down in the canteen or whatever and quite openly say they were sympathetic to the National Front. Was that abuse and racist language directed at you? Absolutely not. Some people may think it's bizarre because nothing was directed at me as an individual, either directly, indirectly, or in any subtle way. And I think that's why they were quite confident that they could just use vile racist language in my presence and hearing because what they said to me is we don't see you as a black person we see you as one of us and I think they thought that was a good thing to say that to me. Do you think they consider themselves racist and how did you feel about the language they were using in front of you? I don't think it's a question of whether they thought they were being racist clearly their language behavior attitudes was racist because I think there's a big problem with people accepting they are racist. And, and later on in my career, I did find officers who kind of used me as a confessional and actually admit that they were those vile racist people. It was against that backdrop of a culture where racist language and stereotypes were normalised that the investigation into Stephen Lawrence's murder began. Next time on Stephen Lawrence, the murder that shamed Britain. They thought the police had been obstructive and, and indeed lied to them. It just felt as though it might be one of those cases where, although you might be lucky and find something, equally you might not. One, they wanted some justice for Stephen, but two, that the only way they're going to get it is themselves. The prosecution alleged that this man, Neil Accord, arriving at the Old Bailey this morning, was part of that gang. The other accused are Luke Knight and Gary Dobson. They were doomed to fail. There just wasn't enough evidence. You know, they are just laughing. They are actually laughing at the police force. They are laughing at the criminal justice system. They're laughing at society, really. We had a lot of evidence that they were racist thugs. We had a lot of evidence that they had no reputation to lose. The Mail's front page splash names five unconvicted men, branding them as murderers. They felt, that's it, you've had a go. We are now untouchable. You've been listening to Stephen Lawrence, The Murder That Shamed Britain. With me, Stephen Wright. <laughs>